0: Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. All right, today we've got the story of Sergeant Ryan Pitts and the Battle of Warnott. So Sergeant Pitts was serving as a, uh, a forward observer with... The 2nd Platoon, Chosen Company, 2nd Battalion, 503rd Infantry Regiment, part of the 173rd Airborne Brigade. And I believe they're in the middle of a 15-month deployment, 15 months, to RC East, Regional Command East in Afghanistan in 2008. The Battle of Wanat would take place on 13 July 2008, but the whole operation would, would tie in a few days prior to that. So we'll get some background as well. Sergeant Pitts and his platoon, it's going to end up being about 48 people strong at that Americans that take place in this battle. And they're tasked with setting up a combat outpost outside of the or right up against the Winnat District Center. The the logic, the, the thinking within the U.S. military was we needed to be on the ground near some of these population I don't want to call why a population center, but for that portion of Nuristan, it kind of is. I mean, there's nothing there. It's when you think, so when you think why to get the right size of a hub in your head, population hub, think of when you're driving through a small town and you're on a highway, not on an interstate, but like a state highway and there's a gas station, maybe a stoplight, probably not. And you see just a few houses and maybe like an old store. And you think, it's weird, that's that's a town? That's a whole town? That's not. It's not big. It's, but just because it's not big doesn't mean it can't be the district center of, the, the, of uh, the area. So there would have been population kind of scattered throughout the valley. And one of the issues that the United States has had from day one in Afghanistan is you've got these very segmented tribes. So there's people that there's tribes and, and people in this valley that would have never left the valley their entire lives. There's a few reasons for that, but one of them is the difficulty of getting in and out. So if the people who live there have a hard time getting in and out, it's going to be hard for us or you know, a foreign force to come in there and have any sort of influence. The solution to that has been to set up semi-permanent outposts, combat outposts, forward operating bases, FOBs, something that American forces can have Permanent is not the right way to say it because you're generally, we're generally talking tents and sandbags, but a more permanent presence. Instead of showing up once a week or once a month, there's an American unit down the street and they live there. Even if they only live there for six months, then we pull out. It's a little more permanent, a little more of a fixture um, to present then the plans of the Afghan government and tie in the local police and tie in the army and whatever it might be. That's the idea that leads up to the Battle of Wanat. So Sergeant Pitts and his platoon take off on uh, July eighth, head into Wanat with uh, on ground via some vehicles, and uh, set up and start you know what I call hasty defense of the area. So this ask of moving to an area and set up a new outpost happened time and again in Afghanistan and Iraq. So it's, it's you know I, I'm not sure if their unit had done it yet specifically this platoon. I don't know if they've done it yet, but it's not outside the realm of what a normal ask would be. So one of the first things they're going to do is set up, you know, initially get their defense set in. They're going to make sure that they uh, can defend the position. They have gun trucks. They have um, anti-tank missiles that can be used at a distance. Um, Even though the Taliban don't have tanks, they're still a pretty good use for those weapons. um, When you have the range to fire them into the mountains, they've got heavy mortars, 120 millimeter mortar system with them. They have, Uh, Mark 19 automatic grenade launchers. They have 50 caliber machine gun. They've got a pretty good amount of firepower to help with the defense. They string up some barbed wire. They start filling sandbags. And it's one of those, look, it's one of those where like you can never do enough. If when you're putting in a defensive position, there's just not going to be enough time to do it all. So they've got 40, 40 some soldiers. Not every soldier can fill sandbags and build defensive positions because you have to have somebody point security. So what's that ratio look like? And you probably want more people on security than filling sandbags in a brand new area, the base of a valley that you know is hostile. So, you know, how long does it take to build this thing? You're, you're, you know, it's probably not the right way to use this term, but you're building the airplane in the air, right? So, like there's, it needs to be built right away, but the more people you take off the perimeter to build it, the more risk you take. So it's just going to be a slow process. They end up getting a, uh, some equipment that comes in, The equipment, of course, breaks. That's what happens, especially when you need it most and you can't get anybody to fix it. It's going to break. It does, needless to say, by the 13th of July, the base is not complete. It's not near completion. It's just, it's taking time. It's, It's not the fault of the soldiers on the ground. It's the fault of being, it's the fault of what happens in war. It's the fault of what has happened in Afghanistan for 20 years. It's just, this stuff is never as smooth as you intend for it to be step back a little bit and talk about the area they're going to be fighting in. So they're in Nuristan province, and they're just 25 miles from the Pakistan border. That, if you look at maps of where conflicts are happening, major conflicts, and not just major conflicts, but sizable enemy forces taking on American outposts or American forces in Afghanistan, it's within spitting distance of the the Pakistan border. So, Wannat within twenty-five, not a straight line. There's some awful terrain between here and there, but twenty-five miles to uh, to Pakistan. But within that, but within a twenty-five mile radius, as you're sitting in Pakistan, you move out towards uh, towards Wannat, you're going to come across the area where um, Operation Red Wings took place. Remember, this was in 2005 when um, Lieutenant Michael Murphy and his SEAL teams were identified in the mountains and and. Had a massive firefight, and, and three seals were killed, and then a whole Chinook of special operations forces were shot down. 2000. I mean, that was that was right around this area. You've got another member of the 173rd Airborne Brigade at the time, Specialist Salvatore Junta, will be awarded the Medal of Honor for actions right in around this area again, um, just a few miles away. You've got Op Restrepo. Um, that there's there's books, there's there's movie about this. The nonstop. Kinetic environment they were operating in, that's just a few miles away. I mean, it's, we can keep going. It's, there's a lot of fighting in this area. And it seems the closer you get to the Pakistan border, because you remember, US forces really aren't firing over the border. We're really not pursuing across the border. So it's a bit of a sanctuary for these fighters. That said, for any operation, any operation, military planners are taking a few things into consideration. And those are known as the – that they plan against the most likely enemy course of action and the most deadly enemy course of action. And you can apply this to anything you do. You can apply this to your day-to-day. It's kind of what we do as people at baseline. The Army is just kind of formalized it a little bit in the planning process. But you have to figure out how much of each of those do we plan against because you can't, you can't plan for everything to happen, right? So you, you, you'd be paralyzed. You wouldn't be able to actually function. So you have to figure out what's the what's the most likely enemy course of action. How do we plan against that? Well, the most likely enemy course of action in this area in 2008 would have been harassing small arms fire from the hillside. It would have been maybe some heavy weapons coming in. It would have been at distance, likely. Um, they may have seen enemy forces numbering 10, 15, 20, um, firing nonstop, maybe firing so much down into the outpost that they can't hardly complete construction. That is going to be right in the camp of most likely. That's what they're seeing all the time. That's what we're seeing across Afghanistan all the time. Then you've got this camp over here called most deadly course of action. You have to consider it because you have to plan for the worst case. And you know, it depends on where you're operating. And you take that worst case. It's not just a dream is not just that you wake up and it has to be realistic. The the worst case scenario is not that the Taliban fighters detonate a nuclear device. Like that's doesn't help anybody. We're not planning on that. You have to think within their capabilities, what is the worst thing they can do? And usually what happens is you take that most likely and you essentially give the enemy the benefit of the doubt is a better way to put it. So you, you would say instead of those 10 to 20 fighters are going to, going to harass the airfield. It's going to be, they. maybe they have a Dishka-heavy machine gun and they prevent any aircraft from coming and going. So after the U.S. forces are hit, we can't medevac them out. That kind of thing. Maybe it's that they close off the roads. It's usually the most deadly is within a logical jump from most likely, which means that you can kind of plan in the middle and feel comfortable moving forward. That said, there's always risk. This is a war zone. This is combat. There's always a risk that has to be assumed. I don't know what the most likely course of action was identified for this operation. I don't know what the most deadly course of action was identified. What I do know is that nobody was prepared for the morning of July 13th, 2008, for nearly 200 enemy fighters to open fire simultaneously on OP Topside and Cop Kaler. Immediately targeting... The outpost, which was situated separate from the, about 40, 50 yards away from the main structure. Every soldier in that outpost was wounded or killed in the immediate barrage of rocket propelled grenades. That same first wave targeted and destroyed the tow rocket system, the tow missile system, one of their heaviest weapons in the defense as well as 120-millimeter mortar. This is not an accident. This is not lucky shots. This is an enemy that's watched for a few days that understands if you have the element of surprise, knock out there. If you have the element of surprise, knock out what you want to knock out right away. And they went after the heavy weapons, and they did it right away. Sergeant Ryan Pitts was in OP topside when those first RPG rounds came in. He was wounded in the arm, both legs. Regain... I don't want to say regain consciousness, kind of, you get your, it's getting your bell rung. It's a loud explosion to concussion is a really good way to put it. And immediately recognizes the, the scale of the attack. It's hard not to, there's fire coming from, especially at the OP, at least three sides, heavy fire. And in terms of the entire platoon, it's coming in a full circle. It's from every direction and it's close. Immediately, Sergeant Pitts begins returning fire. He the, the enemy is so so quickly on top of their position that he's, before long, he's lobbing grenades. At times, letting the spoon pop off the grenade so the fuse starts to reduce. And lobbing the grenade so it explodes very soon after he throws it. The enemy fighters are right up on his position. And he's... he's it's the, you know when we say outpost, it's not a ten foot by ten foot. It's a little bit bigger. There's a little room to maneuver, but it's not a huge area. So he's he's lying. He's alternating between being down and up, returning fire. Same with a couple of his guys. And and before long, he's on the radio as a forward observer, calling in updates back to his commander to his leadership to start coordinating indirect strikes. He's wounded, pretty seriously wounded at this point. As he's doing that. He leans around and notices that no other American soldiers are, no other surviving American soldiers are with him. He's all of a sudden the only one manning this outpost that's being hit by at least dozens of Taliban fighters. They're coming, they're firing from within town, which is a problem because remember the Americans moved into this area to try to work alongside the people in that village. So it's a problem and unexpected that the Taliban is now Taliban or other elements. There were a handful of, forces that likely were involved here but firing from in the town firing from uh fortified positions if you will just the, the nature of the walls in that town would have been able to stop a lot of small arms fire firing from above, i mean they it's coming from every direction it's coming in close while sergeant pitts is calling in situation updates as well as providing coordinates for indirect fires the other side of the radio can hear the enemy voices that's how close they are to his position at one point, he has to call back to the main base, and because they can't get to him, there's a there's a gap. You have to leave a covered position to get to a covered position, and that's deadly. The amount of fire that is flying around during the battle will not. It's it's not that there's necessarily an enemy fighter standing between those two, but to get from one to the next, you, you, you're not going to make it. And on multiple occasions, American soldiers tried to make that run and 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 weren't able to. Eventually, Sergeant Pitts calls back to the men on Cop Kaler and asks them to lay down suppressive fire right over his head. So he's laying down against the sandbags, and there are enemy fighters so close on the other side of him that he needs these guys to shoot from 100 yards away or more and lay down fire almost, I mean, inches from his head to suppress the enemy so he can at least move around just a little bit. After about 30 minutes of holding down OP topside by himself, Sergeant Pitts is well, reinforcements arrive. They come, they start looking at his wounds. And of course, what happens again? Another explosion, another RPGs um, that kill or wound even more. About 30 minutes into the battle, Apache show up, start to conduct their first gun runs. A lot of it based off of the information that Sergeant Pitts is relaying from the OP. Remember, he's got a little better view of everything from where he is, even though now he's severely wounded. He's, he's, he's hanging on. But somehow he's still he's still fighting back. The Apaches come in, and before long, the enemy starts to break up. As bombers come on station, A tens come on station, Black Hawks start dropping off resupplies to the soldiers on the ground. After about a two hour fight, the battle starts to dissipate. The end result being nine, <clears throat> excuse me, nine American soldiers killed in action. The deadliest day for American forces in Afghanistan since Operation Red Wings in 2005. There were 21 to 65 estimated enemy fighters killed in action. And the numbers varied of how many people, how many enemy fighters attacked that outpost that day. American estimates have it between 100 and 200. Afghan estimates put it between 400 and 500. You can take the smallest number there and the U.S. forces should have been overrun. It's for People like Sergeant Pitts and many of the soldiers that were lost that day that kept the enemy from doing that. And what does it mean to not have your base overrun? Well, as they're trying to overrun this outpost, the enemy fighters would have the Taliban would have had access to wounded Americans and dead Americans. And they a, a goal would have been to take our dead and wounded and pull them back for propaganda purposes. So those families, those friends, those children, those husbands, or those wives would have seen their loved ones in ways that nobody wants to see their loved ones. By holding his ground on OP Topside, Sergeant Pitts prevented that from happening. And for the the duration of that fight, it would have been 100% acceptable for him to fall back and do everything he could to get back to Cop Kaler. I don't know if he would have survived the move from the OP back to the cop. It sounds like a, a, a deadly run, but he went above and beyond from the get-go. For that action, for holding down the fort, for holding down OP topside, for the duration of the Battle of Warnat, and only being evacuated after U.S. forces had started their reinforcement, air support was en route, on station, for that action, Sergeant Ryan Pitts would be awarded the Medal of Honor. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening.